Whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no hollow, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink. Thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own. Into our house enter thou not. Through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to or welcome back to Scared to Death. I'm Dan. Hey, Dan. I'm Lindsay. Hello. Hello. We hope you love horror. Otherwise, uh, I think you might be in the wrong place. Yeah. Otherwise, GTFO, man. <laughs> GTFO, yeah. dude. Dude. Thanks to you creeps and peepers for listening wherever you listen and uh, and, and for watching us on YouTube. I know uh, more people have been watching. I met some people in Sacramento. Fun. This past weekend who uh, talk about, you know, watching the show all the time and enjoying watching the show. So that was cool to hear. Yeah. We got some awesome gifts. Well, I got some presents. I wasn't in Sacramento, so Dan brought some things back for me from some fans that we'll mm -hmm. acknowledge at the end of the show because we like to dive right into our stories. And I'll talk about three creepy little dolls that are over here, oh little God. tiny, that I, I, I bought at the, one of the weirdest stores I've ever been into in my whole life. Joe has the uh, camera on me, so I'll get um, this just, one out. Just, oh God. But this this little this little lady, her eyes move. It's going to be tough to see. Can I see her? Kind of, yeah, you can here. see her. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about that. It was like straight out of a horror movie in Sacramento, California. There is one of the creepiest stores. I can't do it. I was trying to find the right. I've ever been to in my life. Oh, her eyes open and shut. Exactly. And they open kind of shut in a weird way. So we got that going on later. Uh, thanks for the continued ratings and reviews. Um, yeah, 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 that's how you help us. That's that, how you help us and spread the show and tell your friends and all yeah, that good stuff. That's how the show grows. That's how we can hopefully eventually someday take this baby on the road into haunted locations. That's always my goal. Okay. Which, which I'm terrified of and like feel like I would be crying, <laughs> but also think would be so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I still, I, yeah, I know, mm. I know. I know. I know. Very... I don't know how we're going to do that, uh, but, but hopefully one day. One day. Hopefully one day. Um, and thanks for uh, continuing to send in your stories, uh, personal tales of horror to my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. We, we love those. It's such a fun addition to the show. Uh, I think it really makes the show so unique. Yeah, it, I love it. Yeah, it just makes it that much different than a than a normal horror podcast. And uh, and thanks for checking out bad mer uh, badmagicmerch.com. We have uh, my favorite t-shirt in the store now. It just hit the, uh, today. <laughs> Lindsay's Crystal Emporium. So having some fun with Lindsay and uh, with crystals. Just a little JK in. JK, JK. And it's a very funny shirt, I think. Very funny. And more in the store as well. Uh, saw saw the shirts out in the wild for the first time in Sacramento this weekend, and it was so cool to see a lot of scared to death, uh, you know, shirts in the audience I at, love the, at the stand-up show. So that was very fun. Thanks, Spicy Club, for kicking that out. Okay. So how many stories do you have today for us, Lindsay? I, I have two. Okay. I have two. I have two. two? I had to stop and think for a second. Yeah, because I was working on these on Friday, so I was right. like, wait. Yeah, okay, I have so two. You, so you have two. Mm -hmm. I have two. Great. Uh, you know, li little short one, short or not as short as some, and then a, and then a one that's quite a bit longer. And this first story, I will admit, is is more, more just disturbing and and kind of confusing than it is outright scary. But it okay. really has stuck with me. Oh well, that's never a good sign for I, me. I think. Uh, okay, so this first story. Hold, uh, can I get? Protected? Yeah, you, you get ready. You get ready. Well, I'll just, I'm setting okay. up the stories. Okay. Well, well, I need to acknowledge the socks that oh, I have yeah. on today. So I know you guys go crazy when I wear double socks, but someone gave me some socks to say, I love doodles, you know, because we have two doodles at home. 
but that is not the same as a fuzzy protection sock. So I'm going to, while Dan sets up the story, I'm going to put on my fuzzies over my socks. And yes, I have my other socks on. So I will be wearing three pairs of socks. Oh, man. The internet's going to explode today. Brain's going to blow up. And I'm going to get my protection blanket on. But you you start laying it out, Dan. Okay. So this uh, this first story, it might not even involve paranormal elements necessarily. It just is, what if someone harassed you over the phone for many, many years? Oh my God, I'm thinking of someone we know. Someone threatening you. Someone investigators couldn't seem to track down no matter how hard they tried. Someone who called you from an impossible variety of locations. Would it break you down? Bashir yes. uh, Ko- Kochachi uh, it, it lived this reality, and we'll tell his story, and then we'll go a little more traditional with another Ed and Lorraine Warren horror classic. Wait, more Ed and Lorraine? Mm-hmm. The Snedeker family haunting, the basis for the 2009 horror movie, A Haunting in Connecticut. So oh, this did is we the story watch be- that one? No, this, uh, this is an older one. Mm. Uh, a crazy story of one family experiencing some really, really bad, really aggressive poltergeist activity. Did you know that last week when I said, oh, I loved Rose Byrne in... Uh, you, she wasn't even in that movie? No. So it, so Ed and Lorraine Warren are The Conjuring. Uh-huh. It's The Conjuring Universe. Ro- Rose Byrne. Insidious. Yes. Okay. Which those movies really fucked me up too. So. Yeah, I, I hesitated on that, but I don't uh, pay attention to actor and actresses' names that well. So I was like, yeah, all right, maybe. Like, whatever. Maybe, she knows whatever. stuff. She's talking. Don't mind me. I'm just getting my amulet flat against my chest. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You have to have skin contact with it or else. All right. Hey, buddy. (laughs) Cool it. You're just getting weirder and weirder over there. Oh, Uh, oh, because you're so normal. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, Listen, Crystal Lady, let's get into the story. You cool it, Mr alpha male sunglasses. <laughs> Dan has a whole Instagram account. What's it called? Uh, Coolglasses.alpha male. It's, uh-huh. it's a business. It's a new business. Uh-huh. Just wait. Mm-hmm. Do you know that there's going to be a female counterpart it's, to that? It's, it's already come out. Mm-hmm. I, it's it's beta, beta babes or something. Mm-hmm. I saw. I saw. Yeah, so Liz Harmony, are you, in, are you involved in of that? Of course I am. Okay. All Don't right. be ridiculous. Okay. Okay. Let's get back to horror. Fine. Take me to the scary stuff. I was trying to avoid it. I'm <laughs> not feeling it. <laughs> a little bit of setup here. This uh, Bashir and his last name uh, could not find uh, anybody saying it on the internet. Uh, Kuchakji, I think. It's a little tough one for me. Bashir Kuchakji was a citizen of the world, born in Syria. Bashir and his wife, Gail, were American citizens who moved to Beirut, Lebanon in 1974. Gail was a professional singer who worked at the Phoenicia five-star hotel where Middle Eastern diplomats and arms dealers mingled with Lebanon's upper crust, and Bashir worked a variety of jobs in the restaurant industry and made a nice living. He and Gail were making a nice life for themselves. Nice life for themselves. And then July 1st, 1974 happened, and Bashir's life would be full of nearly constant turmoil for roughly 30 years. 30 years? Yeah. Yeah, this is this is bananas. Uh, Bashir was on his way to pick up his wife from a party when a black van drove him off the road. Out of his rearview mirror, Bashir saw several men exit the vehicle. Bashir got out of his car and tried to reason with them, but they placed a bag over his head. What? Shoved him in the van, all without an explanation. When he awoke, Bashir found himself bound and trapped in a dark basement. Didn't know where he was. Didn't know who his captors were. He hoped that once they realized he wasn't a politician, they might let him go. Must all be just a big misunderstanding. It had to be. A couple of hours later, the same men from the van entered the basement to question him. Oh, God. When he told him he was an American citizen, the men accused him of working for the CIA. They tied him to a chair, beat him with metal pipes, uh, cut him with knives, tortured him in a variety of other ways in interrogation sessions that would last up to two hours a time. 
He wasn't giving any food. His captors would wake him every time he started to doze off. After several days of beatings and questions about people and situations he truly knew nothing about, he still didn't know who these men were or how to give them what they wanted. Uh, Bashir started to hallucinate after a couple days of torture. He thought he heard the anguished screams of his family members in nearby rooms calling for his help. It was all too much to bear. He lost track of time. He had no idea how long he'd been in this living hell. At one point, he decided he would rather die than continue to be tortured, and he slit his wrists <gasps> with a sharp piece of plastic. When his captors saw what he'd done, miraculously, inexplicably, they drove him to a nearby hospital, and then they took off. What? That doesn't make sense. None of this makes any sense. A doctor was able to save his life. He was left with so many questions, so many unanswerable questions. It was such a confusing nightmare. Days of torture for no understandable reason. In addition to experiencing PTSD from being tortured, Bashir was now also very reasonably paranoid. Uh, yeah. For all he knew, the men would come back for him. Maybe the next time they'd come from members of his family. It was all so horrible and surreal. He would have been tempted to believe that he had somehow hallucinated the entire thing if it wasn't for the fresh scars now covering his body. He tried to move on with his life. Two months later, Bashir moved to California. He and Gail divorced. Oh, sad. I bet it ruined them. Oh, yeah. Bashir wasn't the same man he was before the accident, after, after losing Gail. He was able to get some investment money together, and he was able to open a Moroccan restaurant on the Sunset Strip called Marrakesh Restaurant. And it was good. It was great, actually. It gave him something new to focus on. The restaurant became uh, popular. He and his sister decided to franchise it, and they opened additional locations in Philadelphia and Washington, D.C. By 1982, Bashir's life seemed to have returned to normal, better than normal, actually. Outwardly, he was an American success story. But in his private moments, he was still afraid. Oh, my God, of course. Where were the men who had taken him and tortured him? When would they come for him again? And then the phone call started. Time now for the tale of Don't Answer That. Mm. Bashir was in D.C. supervising the building of the new Marrakesh restaurant when it began. He had just had a phone line installed, and then he got his first strange call. And then another, and another, and another. Once it started, it was constant. Over and over and over, Bashir received calls where he would hear silence and then faint laughter like a child's. When he installed an answering machine, it started recording these strange messages with the creepy laughter. What? At first, Bashir just thought it was a prank, maybe some local kids, maybe a disgruntled former employee. He didn't think it was anything to worry about. Mm-hmm. And he was wrong. Soon after the restaurant opened for business, the calls continued, and then the caller started doing a lot more than laughing before hanging up. The mysterious caller now threatened to kill Bashir. Sometimes he could hear machine gun fire in the background. What? The caller also knew very specific details about Bashir's personal life he shouldn't know. Specific details about his former marriage to Gail, for example, what they talked about in private moments. The caller mentioned acquaintances that Bashir hadn't spoken to or about in years. It was very confusing, very scary. The strangest aspect of these new calls was that the voice on the other end of the line was almost always a child's voice. Weird. Bashir started referring to the caller as la, la Infant, French for the child. And over the next decade, Bashir received 15 to 20 calls a day. A day? From Lafont every day for over 10 years. Oh my God, I'd go insane. Even more troubling, the caller seemed to always know where he was. When Bashir went to, uh, uh, to visit his sister in Philadelphia, Lafont would call him there. And it wasn't only calls now. One day, Bashir found cryptic engravings carved under the side of his Mercedes. A couple days later, when his, his car started overheating and he opened the hood, 
he discovered that someone had messed with the spark plug wires. That's terrifying. Someone had tried to connect them to the fuel lines in a way that would have blew up his car if they had done it successfully. Oh my God. And Bashir had no idea who was doing this or why. Was it one of the men who kidnapped and tortured him back in Beirut? Mm -hmm. Did they now want him dead? Mm -hmm. Why? What did they think he might know? Eventually, Bashir talked to the FBI about what was happening, and they put a tap on his D.C. restaurant's phone. Over 18 months, they recorded over 3,000 threatening phone calls. 3,000? In 18 months. Holy fuck me. And those were just the ones received by that restaurant, not the ones he received in other locations. And how disturbing is this? When they tried to trace all these calls, they found that they were coming from payphones all around the D.C. metro area, with calls coming in from across the city within seconds of each other. How could that happen? It seemed as if multiple people, perhaps dozens of people, had to be involved to pull this off. Mm -hmm. Why? Why would someone go to so much trouble to harass a random D.C. restaurateur? After a year and a half, after the calls still had not escalated into actual violence, the FBI gave up. Dang. It wasn't an investigative priority, and they just couldn't figure out what was going on. This is devastating for Bashir. He was starting to feel like this harassment would never end. He half expected to die every time he started his car. He half expected to be kidnapped every time he left home, mm-hmm. you know, or left his restaurant for home. He was becoming increasingly paranoid as the calls continued. Of course. You know, was it the man he'd seen at the, uh, the other day at the gas station? W- was that the guy calling him? What about the guy at the grocery store the day before? The one who seemed to follow him up and down the aisles for too long? Was mm-hmm. he doing this? Mm-hmm. Who? Who was doing this? Bashir ended up actually checking himself into a mental health facility from the stress of all of this. That's awful. While he was in the hospital, the infant continued to call his D.C. Marrakesh restaurant. Then, three weeks after Bashir checked himself into the hospital, the young son of the restaurant's new manager was attacked and beaten by two men while walking home from school. What? The attackers offered no explanation for why they were beating him. Mm -mm. And then, L'Enfant called the restaurant and bragged about the attack. Fuck. How did he even know it occurred? It had never made the news. Was he one of those two men? Did he hire those two men? The next morning, this manager walked outside uh, of his home to find a message spray-painted on his front door that read, Your son will die. My God. Meanwhile, L'Enfant found out that Bashir was in a mental health facility and started to call him there. Oh, my God. Bashir continued to receive calls every day until he checked himself out. And then the calls followed him home. Bashir would spend the next 10 years checking him in or checking himself in and out of hospitals across the country. Wow. Every time the calls followed, he couldn't hide. L'Enfant, whoever it or they were, always seemed to know exactly where he was. Finally, in 1994, the calls went away over a decade after they began, 30 years after he'd been kidnapped and tortured. Bashir checked himself out of a psychiatric center one last time, still not knowing who had called him or why. He suspected he was the victim of mistaken identity, but he could never prove it. He just had to live with the fact that for over 10 years, and possibly for as long as 30 years, someone had been watching his every move. And maybe they still are. I can't figure out where Bashir is today. Is he dead or alive? I don't know. Has someone started calling him again? Did he ever find out what this was all about, or did he die never knowing? How weird. Isn't that a creepy story? Well, it's creepy on so many levels. Like, okay, how many times have you been driving home and somebody keeps like making the same turns as you and then it's just your neighbor or like you both happen to randomly be leaving the market at the same time. Like those things happen, right? I like always kind of feel like, oh yeah. 
especially, I, I mean, especially being female, I think that sure. you're hyper aware of anybody making the same moves as you. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But fuck, feels very men in black. Right, right. Yeah, just just the length that it went on, the weird kid's voice. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. I mean, I mean, uh, and then and then the, the detail that disturbed me most was the FBI information about the calls coming in from multiple payphones across the city. So to me, I'm thinking like somebody either knows how to manipulate the or knew how to manipulate the phones that would make it appear that way. Yeah. And it almost does have paranormal overtones where it's like, what the hell was it? Like, was it even a human or a series that you're like, what the hell? Well, it sounds like was a, making that voice. I don't know. A network of things. I know the fact that it and was a child. Him? Right. Well, and like mistaken identity. This wasn't uh, like the 1800s. I mean, this was fairly recent, right? right when we right, think about yeah. that. So it's like, we have the internet, we have Google. It would be very easily disproved that Bashir was not who these people thought he was if they yeah. thought he was some sort of uh, mastermind criminal right. or some FBI informant. Like, you'd be able to figure it out, right? Yeah, just a very, very strange story. Just very unique. I don't like it. I know, I know. Like, what the hell went on? So we got some pic- Okay, so this this first picture is this is a pic of Bashir uh, that we'll pull up here. Um, it's hard to find a lot oh of good pictures God. of him. That on was the- so creepy. Wait, you didn't even see the best part? Uh, nope, I'm no, good. No, come on, come on. No, no. Okay, it's down. I don't believe you. Okay, here, here's... Um, <laughs> here, dang that was, it. That really, like, that made my heart skip did a it? beat. I did dang not it. like that. Why didn't you focus? Oh, look, but look at it now. I don't want to. Oh, look at it. No. Just for a second. No. Just for a second, then it'll go no. away. No. Fucking no. I'm not looking. Ginger was already staring at the mirror today barking was for she no seeing that fucking thing? reason. Oh, man. Okay. Okay. Now it's really gone. Now we're going to pick a Bashir up. <laughs> Joe. Joe. It's... God damn it. <laughs> so creepy. Okay. <laughs> now now we'll get a picture of uh, the real Bashir up. This, there's only one picture of him I could find online. Um, I, this, well, he's this, probably this erased himself. This came from an old Unsolved Mysteries, I believe. Um yeah. Oh, 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 back, Joe. Back, Joe. Go back. To the, go back. Back. There he is. Okay. There he is. Okay, cool. Okay. Just like. Yeah. So just like, you know, he, does, he doesn't look like he's not wearing like a tinfoil hat. He's not wearing. No, and he yeah. also doesn't look particularly like unstable nope. or untrustworthy or like shady. Nope. He, he never, he never like gained anything. Dude. Never gained anything from the story. He never went on like weird speaking tours or anything. Like he, he was a successful businessman. He just wanted these calls to stop. I just, the detail that it was a kid. Yeah. That and the manager's kid, the beating, I know, the, beating the I'll kill your son. I wonder oh if that God, guy's son weird... is still alive. I know. And we don't know names, so it's yeah. Uh, this next one, this is just a meme that came up when I googled spooky phone call. It's not a scary one. It's just I thought it cracked me up. It's just an older lady, and uh, she's you holding used a little to call skull. Me on my skull phone. You used to call me on my skull phone. I like thank you, internet, for having everything on on their pictures of almost anything at all. That is quite the creepy skull. <laughs> right. It has like little purple fuzzy hair coming out the back or and, something. And by the way, if you're listening and, and you're curious about what images we're referring to, just check our Instagram. It's uh, Scared to Death. I always, I always hesitate. Scared in my head. to Death Podcast. Scared to Death Podcast. There we go. I'm, I always want to cut off podcasts. But Scared to Death Podcast, yeah, you can find it on Instagram um, and then you can see the pictures. Yeah. Do you, when you were younger and maybe just yeah. because you grew up in a rural area, you, you don't didn't experience this or like didn't know this like uh, urban legend or whatever. But I remember when I was about 16 and started driving, people were like, oh yeah, if a car is driving at you with the headlights off and oh, you flash yeah. your headlights, what did that mean where you, before I say mine? I, I don't, I, I just remember there was something about this urban legend, but I have no idea what it means. Well, uh, I, I, I don't remember hearing about it in high school. I heard about it later. Okay. Well, I grew up in Cleveland where yeah. gangs were very 
like normal. I mean, not in my neighborhood, right? I, right. I lived in a more suburban area, but uh, if you flashed your headlights at a ca- oncoming car that didn't have headlights on, it the theory was that it was a gang member. And this was part of their initiation to see like the first person that would flash their lights. And oh my then, God. And then whomever flashed the lights, that gang member would get out and like kill or rape or Jesus. beat that person. So to this day, when I see somebody driving without their lights on, I mean, I know it's not, it wasn't true yeah. that to my experience right. uh, or knowledge. Um, and what made you think of that? Because I was just thinking about the people coming up behind him and kidnapping him oh, okay, and got beating it. him. And it's like, well, what prompted that? Right, right. Like, how do they just at random choose him? Well, he, he thought it was a mistaken identity thing. And, and that is, I mean, that I seems guess, like the most logical. It seems the most logical. But, but then why follow him for so many years? For so many years. And after the FBI gets involved, like, you just keep going because, right. you know, like, if somebody's going to find you, the FBI is going to find you. And I, and I would just think that, it, that the person was crazy who was calling them. But then how could they figure out how to manipulate the phone system to make it seem like the calls are coming from so many places? I don't know. There's and just so many him, weird elements. And find him in so many yeah, mental Yeah, be so good at finding him. But is the reason that we can't find him now because oh something God. happened, it escalated in some capacity, and the FBI like swooped in, and now he's in protection? I don't know. Maybe. Or something nefarious? Something spooky? It could be. That's the thing. It's, it's a weird, creepy mystery. And yeah. obviously he like never married again, never had children because I mean, his life was so fucked up. Right. And good on him for being able to like carve a successful business, you know, uh, or, or create one and then and franchise it while that was going on. Took some mental fortitude. <sighs> yeah. Are you ready for the next story? This, this, this one is uh, something a little more traditionally terrifying. Okay. This is a good old haunted house story. Geez, my favorite. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit of setup. The Snedeker family was in a tough spot. They're doing the best they could. Their eldest son, Philip, had just been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was bad. While the doctors thought that, yes, of course, it was a chance, you know, that he could beat the disease, they also prepared his parents for the very real chance that he could die from this. Mm-hmm. The nearest facility that offered the most promising treatment was 300 miles away. Oh, my gosh. After making the trip five times in one week, Carmen Snedeker, Philip's mother, came to a grave conclusion. If the cancer didn't kill him, the stress of traveling so far and so often might. Yeah. Carmen was drowning. She was trying to juggle being a mother, not just to one son, but to three. She also had a daughter to raise, and she was helping raise two other children, her nieces. And now she was having to make up to five 600-mile round-trip trips in one week, all this on top of her other life duties, and it was killing her. It was only going to be a matter of time before she fell asleep behind the wheel, drove off the road. Something had to change. Sure. So in June of 1986, the family packed up and moved from upstate New York to 208 Meridian Avenue, in Southington, Connecticut, to be near the University of Connecticut Health Center, where Philip received cobalt treatments, excuse me, a type of radiation therapy that has since been replaced by more effective treatment techniques. Uh, The rent of this new place was cheap, a house for the price of an apartment. Here we go again. That's all. That is like red flag fucking number one. Right. If you are getting a steal of a deal on the purchase or a rent of a house, it's too good to be true. It's always too good to be true. <laughs> right. GTFO, you fucking idiot. Don't be Darren. Don't, Don't be a in. fucking Darren. Oh, it makes me so angry. <laughs> so, but I can see like they had a lot of bodies. I, under- I do understand. I understand generally why it happens. Right, I'm not right. without heart. I get it. Like, yeah, yeah. trust me, they I've been there. But yeah. like, my God, 
people, especially, and it's always like an old house. It's never like, oh, this new, modern, completely renovated, beautiful apartment. Yeah. Instead of being $2,000, it's 200 Like, right, it's right. never that. So this house, this house was spacious, you know, enough room for the whole family. Again, big family. Alan and Carmen Snedeker, three, you know, sons, Philip, Brad, and AJ, their daughter, Jennifer, and their two nieces, Tammy and Kim. So a lot of people to get into this place. Six kids, yeah. Yeah, I think it, yeah, I think it was um one yeah the seven. two no it was it was um yeah yeah you're right four kids two yeah so six kids total mm-hmm. so eight people yeah they're trying to put into a place three boys three girls got it got it Carmen hoped the change of scenery would not only be better for her and for the health of her her son but it would also be better for her marriage Alan was a recovering alcoholic who had been struggling recently in the wake of his son's grim diagnosis sure of course so hopefully this fresh start for all of them would put everything back on the right path. When Carmen toured the house, she didn't see the basement because the owner was renovating it, but he assured her that it was a big space with lots of room. Renovating? Uh I already don't buy it. It was the perfect place for a couple with a lot of kids. Everyone could have their own bedrooms. Carmen was exhausted, or almost everybody. You know, it might be a pair here, a pair there. Sure, sure. They didn't get into all that exactly, but space for everybody. Right. Carmen was exhausted when she toured it, uh, and the house was the right size, the right price, so without seeing the basement, she just signed the lease. Based on the rest of the house, what could be so wrong with the basement that she wouldn't want the house because of it? Uh, when the Snedekers arrived. Fucking yeah. everything so much wrong is with wrong basement. with the basement. So much wrong. I didn't even see the movie and I already am like, it's, fuck. Yeah. When the Snedekers arrived, Alan immediately noticed crucifixes ha- uh, hanging over every doorway. He and Carmen thought it was a bit excessive. I mean, who hangs a cross above every doorway? But knowing a fair amount of Catholic friends and family who were, you know, uber religious. I mean, they were also Catholic. They just weren't that Catholic. Sure. They were able to laugh it off and keep unpacking. Mm-hmm. But then when Carmen went downstairs to put some things in the basement, she was exploring for the first time. She found some other objects that were harder to laugh off. Uh-huh. Found scalpels, hooks, and needles. Fuck. Did, did a doctor used to live here? And if they did, why would they be working out of the basement? Why did they leave all this equipment? They also found a hoisting mechanism, turned out to be for a coffin, a medical gurney, blood drains built into the floor, toe tags, and more. A toe tag? Mm, what was all this equipment doing in their basement? I'm sorry, I don't know what a toe tag is. It'll make sense here in a second. Okay. Uh, they figured out that at one time their house had been a mortuary. Oh, a toe tag. Mm, body Got identification, it. yeah. So now Carmen understood why she gotten such a good deal on the place right. and why she hadn't been given a tour of the basement. Carmen and Alan were obviously not overly pleased about this. The principal being Meisel didn't, you know, kind of, or misled, you know, didn't uh, sit well with either one of them. But at the same time, neither of them were easily scared or particularly superstitious. And the thought of sleeping in a home that was once an active mortuary didn't bother either of them enough to have their new lease voided and get their deposit back. They both knew they weren't going to get a deal as good as this for another house of comparable size anywhere near the University of Connecticut Health Center. Just so you know... If we mm-hmm. rent a house ever and we find out that the basement right. was a mortuary. I'm going to lock you down there until you get used to it. We're fucking out, buddy. Oh, okay. Yeah, or that. <laughs> so they made their peace. Out. We're out, oh. Dan. So they made their peace with their decision to live in this strange new home. And they also decided not to tell the kids. No reason to spook everyone. Mm-hmm. They quickly disposed of the assortment of weird looking tools. And then they found the main portion of the old mortuary. There was a closed off door. Uh, off of one of the basement walls. After some tinkering, they were able to force it open. Behind it was the old mortuary parlor of the Hallahan Funeral Home, built in the early 1900s. Inside in some old boxes, Carmen found a book logging the corpses that passed through the mortuary, Polaroid uh, photographs of some of the autopsies. 
She pocketed the morbid photographs. Okay, weird. Continued to gather and throw away the equipment she and Alan found. Was this new discovery disturbing? Of course. Yeah. But Carmen found it also to be honestly pretty interesting as well. And it didn't uh, at first actively frighten her. Her son's cancer, that was scary. That was something to be worried about in the present. This was all just relics from the past. Mm. Time now for the tale of the real haunting in Connecticut. Almost immediately after the Snedekers moved in, Alan headed out for work in their old hometown, or headed to work, you know, in their old hometown of Hurleyville, New York, located in the Catskills just a bit west of Poughkeepsie. It was a, about a two and a half hour drive each way without traffic, just too far to make the commute home each day. So he'd leave Monday morning, return to their new home in Connecticut after a long week at the Stone Quarry, you know, late on Friday. Okay. When Alan left for the first work trip after moving in, his sick son, Philip, pleaded with him not to go. And what he said shook his father a bit. The 13-year-old told his father, this house is evil. We need to leave here right now. Evil, thought Alan. What an odd thing to say. Not odd. And a little creepy considering what he had figured out about the basement, Mm -hmm. what he and Carmen had not told Philip about the basement. Uh Uh-huh. Alan told Carmen what their son said, and they ended up writing it off as somewhat normal teenage anxiety, especially for a teen stressed out about dealing with a very serious illness, a potentially fatal illness. Alan left for New York. Carmen reassured her son that their new home was going to be good for them. It was fine. It was not evil. And she told Philip that as soon as he was well again, they could all leave and head back to Hurleyville. Mm-hmm. Carmen decided that Philip's room would be in the basement. It was, de- it was a decision she would soon regret very very much. Why is anyone's room in the fucking basement, lady? One that would haunt her with guilt. The basement had its own bathroom in case Philip felt sick and had to puke. You know, it was uh, away from everyone where where, uh, everyone else would be sleeping so Philip didn't have to worry about making too much noise and disturbing anyone else when he got sick from his treatments. Also, if my kid is sick with cancer, like I want them the closest to me so I can check on them all the time. Hmm, That's a fair point. Very not into Carmen. Okay, so then that the first night down in the basement, uh, while Philip didn't disturb anyone else, something did disturb Philip. After settling into his bed to go to sleep, he heard someone calling his name. Philip. Stop it. Philip. Stop it. Philip. Stop it. Was it coming from upstairs? It must be. Philip walked to the kitchen where his mother Carmen was talking on the phone to her dad, or to his dad, and he told her about what he had just heard. She told him she'd be talking, she'd been... She'd been talking to his father about him and that the sound could travel in funny ways in an old house, and then she sent him back to bed. Uh. Philip walked back downstairs and crawled back into his bed, and then he heard someone whispering his name again. Oh, my God. Chanting it over and over. Philip. 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 And then he saw him. He saw a man standing in the corner of his bedroom, a man with long, scraggly hair down to his waist, a man who stared directly at Philip. Oh, my God. Philip was too scared to move, too scared to make a sound. The man stared at him for what felt like hours. Philip finally gathered the strength to roll out of bed and run towards the door where he flipped on the light switch. And as soon as Philip turned on the light, the man disappeared. (sighs) He screamed for his mother, who just wrote it off as a sick, scared kid spooked by the sounds and shadows of a new room in an old house. But what she knew about the basement did bother her. Should she say anything? No, she decided it would only scare him further. When Carmen left and Philip tried to sleep again, he'd hear the man back chanting his name over and over from some other part of the basement. Fuck. Philip. 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 He was terrified. 
and he was also exhausted from his treatments. He kept his eyes clamped shut, thinking he would lay awake in fear all night, but soon he had fallen sound asleep, likely with the man in the corner still there, still watching him, still saying his name. My God. A few days later, after a few more nights of Philip being terrorized by the long-haired man in the basement, who only appeared when no one else was in his room. Of course. Carmen noticed that one of the crucifixes over the basement door had disappeared. <gasps> when she examined where it had been, she could see that the nail it had been hanging on was undisturbed. So who had taken it down? Strange. There were other little things she began to worry about, like how when she was downstairs, she'd hear footsteps upstairs when the kids were at school and no one else was home. Oh my God, that's the worst. Or she'd hear someone yell, Mom, from various parts of the house, but no one would be there. She thought it must be her imagination. It must have something to do with all the stress she was under. Meanwhile, Philip continued to complain about being visited by the long-haired man. He swore to his mother he was seeing him every night. My God. Were these visions a side effect of Philip's treatment? They must be. At their next appointment, she asked his doctors. They told her there was no way the radiation was causing hallucinations. Scared but unable to do anything about it, they still needed to be close to the hospital. They still didn't have the money to find someplace else to, to live. She asked Brad, her middle son, to stay with Philip in the basement. Stay with his, his brother. Soon after that, Brad found Philip moving his bed out of the bedroom they now shared and into the old embalming room one afternoon. What? Why? When, when Brad asked his brother why in God's name he was doing that, Philip responded, we made a deal. Oh my God. A deal with whom? What was his brother talking about? Had Philip made a deal with the man in the basement? As the days went on, Philip started to fall into a deep depression. His mental health began to steadily deteriorate a little more each day. And Carmen would have been ready at this point to move to save her son, but while his mood worsened, a miracle was also seemingly taking place. His physical health, his current pri or her current primary concern, was now improving dramatically. His body was getting stronger and stronger day by day. Weird. His doctors were amazed at this sudden turnaround. He looked almost healthy. Uh, looked like he, he looked before he had been diagnosed. But then his personality changed. Was this something more than depression? He was grumpy and irritable. He lashed out at basically everyone he came into contact with. The only response anyone could get out of Philip most of the time now was a flat, dark, unnerving glare. And then he started to antagonize his siblings, something completely out of character for the previously kind, sweet, and protective older brother. He started to hit his younger siblings, who were now becoming afraid of him. What? He started to play mean tricks on them, like jumping out from behind a door or from around a corner, screaming at them, grabbing them, scaring them just to hear them scream and see them cry. Carmen continued to write all of this off as atypical behavior being, you know, due to the tremendous stress of having to deal with a traumatic illness at such a young age. I mean, I guess... But then she found something that convinced her that what Philip was dealing with had nothing to do with cancer. Something that made her really regret putting Philip in the basement. Something was wrong with the house. Something was down there. One day, a few months after they moved in, Carmen was cleaning up the, in the basement when she found one of Philip's notebooks. And what she saw inside of the notebook made the hair stand up on the back of her neck. Flipping through the pages, she found one graphic drawing after another of mutilated corpses, knives, and creatures with sharp teeth and big eyes. Ugh. Most disturbing was how two figures appeared over and over again in the notebook. A strange, humanish creature with white hair and eyes who wore a pinstripe tuxedo, oh whose feet were in constant motion, and a very thin man with high cheekbones, long black hair, and pitch black eyes. Jesus. The man from the basement. 
making this all that much more unsettling were the numerous written journal entries. How could Philip have written these? He was severely dyslexic. Oh. Carmen had trouble getting him to write simple words for years, much less paragraphs. When she asked Philip how he'd written his journal, what he told her gave her the chills. The man helped me do it. What man was helping her son? Soon Philip wouldn't have to worry about the darkhead man and whatever else he was seeing in the basement. He'd be leaving their new home and the rest of his family uh, and, would, and the rest of his family would have to deal with it all. A few days later, one of his cousins, one of Carmen's nieces, told uh, Carmen that Philip had tried to rape both of the cousins while they what? slept. Yes, yeah, she said that she could feel things moving around in her bed at night, pulling at her sheet, pulling on her bra strap and panties. What? When she woke up, it was Philip. No. And then he quickly scurried out of the room. Carmen called a doctor who determined that Philip had schizophrenia. And Carmen then had Philip hospitalized and removed from the home. This was devastating, obviously, for the family. Just as he was physically recovering from this cancer, cancer he was beating, he was also becoming a monster himself. Carmen was still losing her son, just not in a way she'd ever expected. When some orderlies put Philip in loose white clothing and restraints and walked him to his new room in the psychiatric unit of the hospital, he told his mother, now that I'm gone, they'll come for you. And he was right. Holy shit. When Carmen got back home from the hospital, she was furious. She couldn't believe her son had tried to molest his cousins as they slept. This wasn't Philip. This wasn't her son. This was her fault. Whatever was in, you know, this truly God-forsaken basement had changed him. She sat on the stairs to the basement and spoke aloud. She dared the man to come play with her. Uh, bad idea. She waited for hours, but no one called her name. Nothing showed itself. But the spirits were far from done with the Snedekers. Shortly after his older brother Philip was hospitalized, Brad noticed that the lights would flicker on and off. Even though some of the bulbs had been completely dead for weeks, it shouldn't be possible, but it was happening. Carmen then had an especially unpleasant experience with one of her nieces. One night as the two of them were sitting in the living room, chatting before bed, the girl looked at Carmen and said, Aunt Carmen, it's coming. Can you feel it? What? What was coming? The girl hugged Carmen in fear, and then looking over her shoulder, Carmen saw the shape of a disembodied hand underneath her nightgown crawling along her back. She could feel it. <sighs> she screamed, so did her niece, and then it was gone. The next day, Carmen was mopping in the kitchen when something new and terrible happened. When she turned, back to, turned her back uh, to the bucket of soapy water and then turned back around, she saw that the water had turned red and now stank of rotting flesh. Ugh. Suddenly, the entire house smelled like a slaughterhouse, mm. like blood drying and mm. festering. Trying not to gag, she poured out the water, started over, but it just kept happening. What the fuck? She worried that she would soon join her son in the psychiatric unit. Shortly after the bucket incident, Carmen was taking a shower when the shower curtain began to rustle. No, no, no. She thought one of her children was messing with her. Oh, God. She told him to cut it out, but the oh, shower God. curtain kept moving. And then it began to move towards her, and she couldn't push it away. Oh, my God, stop. Soon, it was pushing against her face, her nose, and her mouth. Soon, it was beginning to suffocate her. She started to panic. Was she going to die in the shower? She cried out for her niece, Tammy, who ran and was able to rip a hole in the curtain so her aunt could breathe. <gasps> Carmen felt like whatever was in the house now wanted them dead. She wanted to move, but where? Yeah, get the fuck out, Carmen. Alan was no help. He was hardly ever home. He was working all these long hours just to barely keep the family afloat. Plus, she still didn't want to leave the area with her son, Philip, in the hospital. It felt like abandoning him. Well. So they stayed in the house, and things, of course, continued to get worse. One weekend evening, while they slept in their bed, 
Alan and Carmen both felt the bed sheets ripple and then be tugged away. And when they found out why the sheets were being tugged away, this is insane. Something was about to violate them in a way they didn't think was possible. Not from some spirits, not from something you couldn't touch or see. Alan felt a force holding him down, pressing his face into the blanket so he could barely breathe. Paralyzed, he laid there on his stomach and he felt something enter him. No. This was impossible, but it was happening. He realized he was being roughly sodomized to the point he was bleeding. Oh my God, stop it. When the thing was done with him and he was able to move again, he found that Carmen had incredibly, impossibly experienced the same thing. Oh my God. They had identical bruises. They both could remember feeling and smelling the rank, rotting breath of something against their necks. They both had been violated. Oh my God. How had both of them been raped in the night by something not of this world? Was it the man from the basement? Oh, God, Was the so same sick. creature that had tortured their poor son Philip to the point of literal insanity? Oh my God. All of those crosses they'd seen the day they moved in were now making a lot of sense. Carmen contacted a priest and then the local archdiocese uh, and then a host of paranormal experts to help her and her family. A paranormal expert named John Zaffis came to the house, and while he didn't manage to help them, he would later claim to have witnessed seeing the ghost of a man descend down the main stairwell, a man who said to him, Do you know what they did to us? Who were they? What had they done? None of the religious interventions the Snedekers attempted, none of the paranormal investigations that were called in or investigators turned out to be helpful in getting rid of these spirits. If anything, their attempts just angered the spirits in the home and made them more active. During a final cleansing attempted by a local priest, Father Nolan, Alan heard a voice inside of his head, a voice that wasn't his own, say to him, What fucking good do you think this will do, Alan? You think that God will help you? Why? He hasn't helped you before, has he? Has he? Jesus. During the same cleansing ritual, Carmen began to feel an invisible hand lightly moving over her body, fingers probing and prodding in her intimate places. Oh my God, what is up with this fucking ghost? The Snedegers were desperate. They were scared. They were worried that they'd run out of options. And then one of Carmen's nieces heard about Ed and Lorraine Warren on a local radio show. Okay, okay. The Warrens were supposedly very experienced paranormal investigators, much more experienced than any other paranormal experts they'd already had in their home. Carmen and Alan felt at this point, why not try and use them? Oh my God, yeah, do anything. Yeah, what did they have to lose? It couldn't hurt. So when the Warrens arrived at the house, the Snedegers told them everything they'd experienced thus far. Everything. What had happened to their son, Philip? What had happened to them that night? And then the Warrens thoroughly explored the basement and they delivered some very disturbing news to the Snedegers. Lorraine Warren claimed that while she was investigating their house, when she was walking down into the basement, she saw a man. He looked almost real. He simply appeared at the bottom of the stairs. He wore a filthy undershirt, stained and soiled pants, dirty white socks. His round, sagging belly hung over the waist of his pants. Beneath his left arm was tucked in a, a pair of brown work boots. His breath came in winded, wheezing gasps. He looked up at Lorraine with watery, bloodshot eyes, a smile of jagged, discolored teeth. Nice bodies, he said. Cold, firm bodies. What the fuck? He took step after step closer and closer to Lorraine. Don't move when you touch him. Don't fight when you hold him. He reached for Lorraine's hand as he reached the top of the stairs saying, Come on, I'll show. If you want, you can watch me. He laughed as he let the boots drop from beneath his arm. He reached down towards his crotch and Lorraine screamed and the man vanished. And then she told Ed what they both would then tell the Snedekers. They told the Snedekers that they believed, based on what they had seen, based on what Alan and Carmen had just told them, and some additional research into the known history of the home, that former funeral workers had been practicing necrophilia. 
They believed that the spirits who had watched their bodies be sexually abused by these workers lingered in the house still, angry, waiting to take out their revenge on the living. The Warrens also claimed to have found while investigating the home a trap door into the master bedroom where the coffins were brought in from the basement. During their stay overnight, they heard the chain hoist as if it was bringing up a new coffin. Now that they knew what they were dealing with, the Warrens attempted a cleansing of, the, of their own. They conducted numerous seances and, uh, and allegedly, eventually, they convinced the spirits to leave. Oh. Sadly, it seems as if the spirits had already destroyed the Snedeker family by that time, though. In 1988, the Snedekers would be evicted from their home for not paying rent. Racked with guilt for what she'd done to Philip, Carmen removed him from the mental hospital. Philip's cancer that had gone into remission came back, mm -hmm. and uh, he did die. Oh, my God. Uh, not until 2012, but he did pass from the cancer. Also, after moving out of the home, Carmen and Alan got a divorce. How much did the house contribute to that? Carmen, now known as Carmen Reed, she still gives the occasional interview on what happened in that house in Meridian Avenue. In one interview, she described why she didn't simply leave the house throughout all of this. She said she believed that the house wouldn't let her leave its spirits behind. She said that on several different occasions, she'd be on the phone with a friend, talking from her house that was once that funeral home, and then her friend would hear vicious banging and strange voices and laughter in their house. Weird. Not in Carmen's. Carmen would hear it as well through the phone line, and she felt that the spirits haunting her were letting her know that they were prepared to follow her and her family wherever they would go. Fuck. Let's hope they didn't do that. Let's hope that the man with the long black hair doesn't still appear in the corner of one of the Snedeker's rooms or in the corner of Carmen's room sometimes today calling out, Carmen, Carmen, Carmen. The end. I can never watch that movie. That's an intense story, right? Never. I can never, ever fucking watch that. Where is everybody else? Philip has passed away. Carmen? Mm, doesn't doesn't seem to uh, uh, the, say. Where uh, are the nieces? Where are the siblings? Where's the husband? The the limitations of the internet. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. The internet I, has no limit. <laughs> I'm sure if you had the right software or were able to access the right, right, right. you know, um, kind of government, you know, but they're databases, just... you could find out like where they live, when they died. But yeah, I couldn't, I don't know. Don't know where they went. Oh, we have a few pictures, real pictures. This, I this... do not think I want to look. I have so many. Well, this is Ed and Lorraine Warren. So here's the first oh, yeah. one. Around the time. So you've mm -hmm, seen them mm -hmm, in other mm -hmm. pictures. Hello, hello, old friends. Uh, this next picture is the house where all of this allegedly occurred. Okay. I mean, it doesn't mm -hmm. look altogether that creepy. True. Is there somebody standing in the front yard? Yeah, it's blurred to protect someone's identity, I guess. No. And, oh, yes. And there was a person standing there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I'm like, there's... Here's, All those dark windows, though. God, I know. Here's we. Carmen. Here's Carmen Snedeker. Now Carmen Reed. Uh, you know. You know. Not too far back. Okay. Um, the Snedeker family is in this next picture. Some, but not all, the kids and the Warrens at the time of this happening. Old photo there. So wait. See, that's uh, Lorraine Warren, and then oh, Ed I was like, there in are the two back. Older people, right? Okay, so that's okay. the Warrens, and then the, you know the couple, the Snedekers. And then, um, you know, a couple of the kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And I think one, and that one girl is a little older than one of the nieces. Okay. And then one more family photo. Uh, just I think incorporates. Oh wait, no, no, no. I'm sorry. That was uh, what I, what shows up when you Google rapey demon. That's. I I knew that it was going to be something not good because you were like, <laughs> dang it, lingering too long and like a oh, family photo, da da da, gotta, like too many details. It. Okay, I'm working on it. I'm working. You on gotta it. just like. I know. I gotta add variety, but you know, sometimes I gotta throw them in the front. God. Damn it. Sometimes. 
Oh, so that, that's a crazy, I mean, that's one of the craziest paranormal <sighs> stories out there. It's, it's a pretty known one, you know, and obviously, well, I've you know. I've never heard it before today because I never watched that movie. Oh, and okay. I am I'm not sure a lot of my our fans f- have. Well, I don't spend my free time Googling these things because <laughs> I, I like to sleep. Right, right. And I will say, and I always address this with the more popular stories, you know, whenever a story gets a a, a, le- a certain level of notoriety, mm-hmm. then of course people are going to analyze it more. Sure. And, there, and of course there are people who are like, no, they made it up. You know, the, the, the demons never did this to them. But, you know, again, like all of our stories, you know, I wasn't there. Those people weren't there. And I will say the whole thing about being, like, raped, which is That's a unique thing to this. Yeah. You know, there have been legends of succubuses and incubuses going back hundreds and hundreds of years. Didn't we do – what's that one? There was one – it was, like, in another country that oh, was a really yes. rapey demon. Yes, yes, exactly. I think that was uh, um, off the coast of Africa. And that's an incubus, island. right? Incubus incubus because is a spirit that is a male spirit that will rape a female, and a succubus is a rapey spirit that is a female spirit that, you know, Rapes will a male. rape a male. Yeah, exactly, a male. So I guess now, in this case, spirits, it would have been incubuses. Right. Because they both were raped by something that, that entered them. Right, right, right. Okay, okay. Right, because right, I remember doing the Incubus one before, and then I was thinking about the band, and it right. was not good for me. I know, I know, and, and I, I still really like that band. And but it do is, you think that they— They had to have known. Yeah, they had to have known that that's why— Or what, somebody had to bring it up, like, hey, guys, just so you know. That would be pretty funny if they didn't know. They just thought it was a cool-sounding word, and then, like, <laughs> several albums later, they're like, you know that that name is a, is a rapey demon. I wonder if it Your has— band m- is named after a rapey demon. Does Incubus mean anything else? Like the incubate? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. I think, you know, when you th- the word incubus, specifically that form of incubate, which is, uh, you know, they're related. Yeah. Know, inc- um, but it is, is a demon. Wow. Okay. So many things. <laughs> I don't... Okay, obviously I get why they moved. And like, yeah. I just need to say again, like, come on, you guys, with the cheap fucking houses. <laughs> Right. Like that is that is such a common thing. If you are listening to this podcast, watching it, whatever, mm. and you decide of your own volition to go and rent a cheap house that should be so much more expensive, I have no fucking sympathy for you. You've been listening to this for 20 weeks. You should fucking know better. And, and you know what? And if you're a real estate mogul and you have a lot of houses and some of them are haunted, I think what you've learned from this show is you raise the price, right? Flip it up. You know, charge Ooh. charge more. Make it seem more attractive. Mm-hmm. Charge more for the haunted one. Like the more demons and spirits you have in your home, the higher the rent. Okay. Because then you'll, it'll encourage people to think, oh, this place has to be safe because it's so fucking expensive. Mm-hmm. It must be. It must be very much in demand. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just throwing some business tips out there. You well, you're a genius, Dan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Coffee is for closers, Dan Cummins. <laughs> uh, okay, so there's there's all of that, but I mean. I, all of that aside, obviously, I mean, I understand, mm-hmm. you know, why, like if, if one of our kids was sick and needed right. care like that, you know, and you couldn't get the care close by, I mean, you would do anything right. for and, your child. And maybe, maybe demons or ghosts, you know, and again, if they're, if they're real, maybe they prey on desperation. Maybe they go after it, it people who are the most way vulnerable. Often, doesn't mm-hmm. it? It often feels like. Because you could argue, like, oh, how convenient that these stories, you know, almost never come from, like, you know, uh, a CEO. He's fucking crushing it. Right. And his wife runs a, you know, volunteer, and she's, like, a huge philanthropist, humanitarian. Right. She's crushing it. And the kids are all all-star athletes. And they're being raped by demons at night. You know, it's or whatever. Right, right. Um, And you could be like, oh, that's how convenient that it's always this kind of thing. 
But does it just make sense? Is there some kind of logic to it right. where if these sayings do exist, do they prey on people when they're at their most vulnerable? Well, sure. I was just thinking like you're so mentally weak in those moments because right. I was thinking about the um, – I can't remember when – we did this story, but it was the mom and the daughter. Yeah. And she was a school teacher and they moved to right. a new house, you know, paycheck to paycheck kind yeah. of living. It's yep. like, yeah, you're so mentally strapped. I'm like, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to take care of the kids? Uh, I mm-hmm. wish I could get another job to make more money. But if I do that, then I'm not able to be home. Like there's yeah, just yeah. all these factors, right? When when times are tough, times are tough. And you're so focused on just getting through the day to day. Yeah. Of course, that's when a demon could get you. And that is, you know, kind of typical predator mentality where, you know, uh, the lion, mm-hmm. he doesn't go after the fastest gazelle. Right. He doesn't go after the challenge. He goes after the, the gimpy one. Oh, gimpy one. Yeah. But maybe the gazelle got a little limp. Maybe he's got three legs. That gazelle's going down first. So, what I hear going you saying on hard times is that we need to make a lot of money so that demons never bother us. Mm, that's I, I like that. Okay. Or we need to fuck up one of our kids and just, you know, put them in kind of a rough state so that if a demon does come after, like, in our house, it'll go what? after them. You see what I'm saying? It's like if you're swimming. High five. High five. It's like if you're swimming and you're worried about sharks, you cut one of your friends. Right, right. And then you make them swim a little farther than the rest of the group. <laughs> Solid strategy. You're a genius, really. <laughs> I mean, people should be, make note, make right, note. Right, This will be in your memoir someday. It's my memoirs. Life tips. When swimming in shark-infested waters, give one of your friends a little nick and talk them into swimming a little further away from the group. Well, here's a question. Hmm? Do you always swim with a pocket knife? I do. You do? Hmm? Do you have a pocket knife <laughs> no, on you right I now? Don't, I don't. I don't know why I'd have a pocket knife swimming. <laughs> Because you never carry a pocket knife. Even though we live in the PNW and everybody has a pocket knife. I don't like the, uh, yeah, I don't like to have too many things in my pockets. I know. I have a knife in my truck in case I need to get a knife fight or something. (laughs) Just like, hold hold that thought. Let me grab my knife. Mm -hmm. That's how it works. Yeah, exactly. All right. Oh, my God. Well, I was, yeah, I just, that story is really, ugh. I know. It's an an extreme story. It's an extreme story. Yeah. Okay. Okay, well. Eep. Eep. Yeah. Eep it is. Are you ready? Do you have your squishy? I do. I do. I have my squishy. Mm-hmm. I'm going to I'm gonna bring my new little doll friend over here. I don't know if, she, know if she's going to protect. I do not think that's a good idea. I don't know if she's going to protect me or make things worse, but we'll have her I don't... hang out here. <laughs> she's going to stand guard. I also just want to say, like, before I tell this story, when Dan bought these dolls over the weekend, he sent me, like, a little video of him unpackaging them. They were in a to-go food container. Hot dog container. It was so weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does she have a name? I haven't named her yet. Okay. And she hasn't told me what her demon name is. I know. She is really staring at me. Mm-hmm. So tell a good story. All right. All right, Charlotte. <laughs> Charlotte will mess you up. Okay. Yeah, she just seems like she needs like, an, like a slightly older name. Okay, so so our, our first story is taking us to France. Cool. Which is cool. Now, um, in full disclosure, the fan who sent this story, um, French is his first language. Okay. So so there was I had to like make some I oh. hope I hope that if you're listening, like I had to change some grammatical things just to yeah. make it proper English. not that I'm so great at English, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Just so there were a few little things. So Funny, I just, I had a French we had a French fan. Uh, come to one of the shows in Sacramento this past weekend and mocked me so hard for my uh, inability 
to properly pronounce uh, pronounce French words and for the horrific French accent I will do on Time Suck. But like in good, like in he, good no, he was fun? totally funny. He, oh, yeah, okay, he, he okay. was nice about it, but he was just basically like every American does the same. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But why? Like I've never I know. heard. I know people who are French, right? And I've never heard them act or talk. They that only way. talk that way around themselves. <laughs> they okay. hide it. They hide it for Americans. Okay. All right. Well, there, there you have it. Um, now this story did remind me of something that happened in your childhood. Okay. Great. So, like afterwards, you can tell your story. Okay. Which is, your story is very funny. Okay. Okay. Well, it all started in a small town in France. When I was about six, my mother, father, and grandparents and I lived in a small farmhouse in France. When I was six, there was this lady who lived close by. And from what I can remember, she was very, very creepy. She always had the worst breath and always just seemed evil. She called me the little spawn since my mother and father had had me without being married. She was always rude to my family and would even throw stuff at our house. Weird. One day, she even left a decapitated cat underneath our porch on a hot, sunny day. What? One day, she came by and gave me a teddy bear. It was the ugliest teddy bear we'd ever seen. My mother allowed me to accept the bear from her in an attempt to be kind and kind of keep the peace. However, she later told me that my, she later told my dad that she wanted to throw it away and buy me a new clean bear. Even my grandmother said she felt a really bad presence whenever she was around that bear. No matter where the bear was in the house, grandma did not want to be around it. She even refused to be home alone with the toy. She told my parents that it was bad and that she did not want to be in the house with it. But I, as a child, grew very attached to it and I would cry every time they tried to take it away. Weird, yeah. A few weeks into receiving this bear from the crazy lady, strange things started to happen. My mom swears that she put the bear on the top shelf in my room so it could watch over me while I slept, hoping that it would put me at ease since I loved the bear so much. Yeah. But the bear wouldn't stay on the shelf. She said that one night, the bear fell off the shelf when she had her back turned to it. And ever since that night, she began to feel extremely uneasy and that something was in the room with us. Whoa. A few nights down the road, my mother said that we were going out of the house for a couple days out of the city to spend time with some family. My mom purposely left the bear at home because she didn't like the feeling it was releasing inside of her. However, when we got to my aunt's place and we looked in my bag, she was shocked and extremely scared when she found my teddy bear in my suitcase. My mom and dad both swear they did not pack my bear. Freaked out, my mom called for my dad. He came into the room and also freaked out when he saw the bear. He said to my mom, I thought you left this thing at home. My father swears to me that this is all true. Out of fear, he took the bear outside to the garbage and tossed it. The next morning, my father went outside and saw that the rock he had placed on top of the lid of the garbage can was was still there, but yet somehow the bear was not in the garbage. Oh my God. A few days passed and we were headed home without the missing bear. That's where we found my grandmother. She had passed away. My grandmother was found dead on the kitchen floor, grabbing her chest. As my family was very distraught, there was a lot of commotion. I went to my room and opened up my toy box and pulled out my teddy bear. No, whoa, 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 whoa. What? Are you following? Yeah. 
Okay. Okay. No, wait. Wait a minute, though. On the grandma, the grandma's not the one who gave the bear, though. That's no, the, a different creepy lady. Creepy a, old lady. That's next a, not a, yeah, yeah. Grandma's not the creepy lady. That's a, that's the neighbor. Uh huh. And then the grandma dies, and then the and then the teddy so, bear that had been put in the garbage with the rock over it disappears, and now is back. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. Oh my god. I remember being so excited to play with my teddy bear again. My mom called for me to come to see her for some reason. When I went to see what she wanted, I had my teddy bear in hand and my mom and dad freaked out. How could I have that teddy bear again? They swore on their lives that they left it in the trash over two hours away from our house. Freaking out, my parents contacted a priest the next morning. When the priest showed up, my teddy bear was somehow missing. What? From this day... Until his death in 2002, my grandfather would talk about scratching sounds and a dark omen whenever I was around. Fast forward to about six months after my grandfather passed away of what we thought was natural causes. We decided it was time to move to the United States. We moved to Washington State where my mom was going through a bunch of boxes that we had in the attic. Get out of here. And that is when she found the teddy bear again. What? But this time, the teddy bear had the worst smell she said she'd ever smelled in her whole life. She said it smelled like a combination of cat piss and rotten eggs. She contacted my dad, who was at his new job here in Washington. He came home right away and took the teddy bear to the backyard and fucking burned it. Oh, my God. Since that night, it feels like someone or something is always around us. We have moved what? from Linwood to Everett to Seattle, and no matter where we go, I feel this overwhelming power around me when I go to bed. Thanks for reading. It honestly feels so much better to tell someone about this. Jesus. I don't want to give his name because I feel like there's a lot of details about where he could live and like. Right, right, right. Fine. So, yeah. So yeah. he did give his name, but I feel like okay. eh, maybe yeah. not a good Make idea. That call. Man. I ah woo. I mean one one lesson I think here is uh never accept a gift from the lady who put a fucking headless cat by your porch. Right, but, but that's I, that's when it's over. The relationship with the neighbor is over forever. But maybe they didn't maybe they just suspected it was her. They could probably ah, never prove it. Okay. You know? And it's like if you've got a shit neighbor, you want to keep yeah. the peace, right? So I'm like, okay, well you just take the teddy bear and then oh like God. get rid of it. See, I'm I'm like <laughs> I can get so crazy in those where it's like, like, like I know, I know with neighbors and stuff. Cause I picture if like, if I thought for sure that some crazy ass neighbor, dude or you know, woman, whatever, left a headless cat under my porch, you know, was just a dick and then tried to give one of the kids a teddy bear. I'd be like, listen, you crazy bitch. <laughs> you just fuck away from my family. Well, they're more civilized than you are. Oh my God. Do you, okay, do you know what story that made me think of? Uh, the clown doll. Yeah, do you want to tell really quick? Yeah, I can tell. You, and, and this is actually uh, a story that I, I've told uh, on, in stand-up on a Crazy with the Capital F was the was the album. I, I, I've never special. listened to it, sorry. <laughs> I, you heard it when I was, uh, in, I was warming up. For, it's also in the live from Denver. I read it at one of the clean ones. I didn't listen to you record oh that either. Oh my God. I can't listen to every show in the history of shows, Dan. True, true. I've done a lot of shows. A lot of shows. We've been together for eight years. Yeah. It's a lot of shows. True. My and, and, yeah. And the original recording was pre you. So I, st- exactly. I stopped telling the story before we started dating. Exactly. But anyway, true story. 
Um, all, all, all my stand-up stories are true stories, uh, unless I'm obviously being like imaginative flights of fancy, whatever. But this one, when I was a little kid, I had this, uh, clown doll that for whatever reason was my favorite clown doll or uh, favorite toy. Right. I was into clowns. I mean, there's, uh, uh, old photos of me dressed as a clown for some little parade in like Riggins, Idaho. This is like, I this, went through a clown phase. Right. Right. Which is probably where your fear of clowns started is right sure. here in this story. Sure. Oh yeah, for sure. So I was in this phase and then, um, when we were living in Anchorage, Alaska for a little while, you know, uh, we had HBO. I knew of it as a kid. I knew I wasn't supposed to watch it. So, of course, whenever my mom wasn't around, that's the first thing I would change the channel to that. I think it was like Channel 5 at that time. It's turn hilarious. It, turn it to HBO. I didn't have cable until we started dating. Right, right, right. So weird to me. Yeah, so we had this as a kid. It was our one luxury was the, the cable. And uh, flipped it on one day and happened to turn it to the middle of the movie Poltergeist. Where there was a little boy in that movie who maybe was a little older than me at the time. Around my age. And there's a scene where he has a clown doll sitting in the corner of his room. When the house starts getting possessed by all these spirits, all these spirits, you know, infiltrate the house. This clown doll uh, tries to attack him. When mm-hmm. I, like, he can't see it one night, tries to strangle him, blah, blah, blah. I freak out seeing this on the TV. It's like I'm watching my own future. Sure. And But I don't want to tell my mom because I'll get in trouble for watching the channel right. I'm not supposed to watch. So I take right. this clown doll down to the basement and I just beat on it for a while. <laughs> To, like, teach it a lesson, like, stay away from me. <laughs> you know, total little kid logic. Totally. I, I throw it in the garbage, think that's the end of it. My mom is the kind of mom who you did not, once she bought a toy for you, I swear to God, like, part of her expects me to still be playing with the fucking toys I got when I was five to the, to this day. Because mo- she paid for them. Your mom bought me something, I don't I don't even want to say what it was, but she bought me something, like, when we first moved to this area. Yeah. And I, like, have it in a pile of things that, like, I'm like, should I... I I think I can give it to Goodwill. She'll notice. She'll notice. I know. She's, I know. she's crazy that way. Be, where's that thing that I, I'm like? God. Yeah. Where's that Ugh. one thing that I gave you one time? Mm-hmm. Where's the twenty dollar thing that I randomly thought in a moment of spontaneity that you would like that you now have to keep forever? Uh huh. So she finds the clown doll in the garbage. Uh, like, nope. Uh, maybe he made a mistake, or he's not getting rid of it. Puts it in the corner of my room after I had fallen asleep that <laughs> night. So I woke up like you know early the next morning to that son of a bitch. <laughs> Stared at me, and it, I, in my little kid brain, I was like, I was like, sure that it was possessed. Oh my god! And now I'm like, well, if it, if it wasn't mad before, now it's pissed. Yeah, because like, I beat it up. Yeah, and threw I beat it, it away. up. So it has a reason to be angry at me. I had recurring nightmares after I that for so long, and it developed like a total like fear of clowns for years after that. Yeah. And I love that your family is so demented, like hola- oh, in a yeah. hilarious way, that not that many Christmases ago, Dan's mom oh, yeah. took the that. clown, wrapped it up in like a wood box. It almost looked like maybe there'd be like a nice bottle of whiskey or something in it. And we're all like watching him. I mean, his, That was a new clown doll. That was a new one? Yeah, yeah. I don't know what happened to the old one. No, well, it was a clown doll. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter. And wrapped up and gave it to him for Christmas. So he opens his box and this huge it was, reaction. And it was a coffin. Yes, but it, but it, it didn't look like a coffin. Like right, it wasn't right. so obvious. But right, right. But they, they they made a little wooden coffin mm-hmm. with a clown doll, and then and then sometimes uh, they'll hide the clown doll in like uh, my truck or whatever for me well, to find. Now I think it's gone, gone because our nephew. Oh yeah, was and then it backfired. So well, of course, out. yeah, of course, because little kids, it's fucking creepy, man. Now it's scaring him. Absolutely. Oh, I love it though. Oh my god. Yep, I was laughing at you. In my mind, after <laughs> reading about that story. story, yeah, 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 made me so happy. Well, I'm still creeped out by dolls. I'm trying to make friends with Charlotte, but ever since, yeah, don't like, she don't like is that. fucking pissed off. Yeah, and, and again, I'll, I'll I'll talk about this after this next story. But she was the cre- okay, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So, <sighs> okay, I'm also gonna leave this author anonymous. They, they they left their name off the email, but you know, obviously. So, guys, when you send in your stories, like your name. 
it says like your email address, but you know, when you yeah, sign up yeah, for an yeah. email, it has your name. So if you can just kind of say like, Hey, I, I don't mind my name being mentioned or oh, please don't sure. because call. when there's no name, I'm just going to leave it off yeah. because I, it's yeah. better to be safe than sorry. Yep, yep. Uh, okay. Uh, This did feel like something that could possibly happen. Uh, If you remember last week, we went on a hike. Guess what? We're going to go on a hike again. So that's fun. (laughs) Fun. And also, if anybody wants to uh, help a girl out and send me some iron, after hearing this story, you'll see why. Okay. I'm going to start wearing iron. Oh, boy. Okay. Add it to the crystals. Oh, Jesus Christ. Maybe you'll start wearing iron. I doubt it. I think you will. Okay. I'm going to get you an iron bracelet. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So the story goes, for some quick background, I was raised in a devoutly Christian home, turned to paganism in my rebellious teenage years, typical, became a militant atheist and skeptic as a young adult before finally returning to paganism. Although I'm a practicing pagan priest and study many different cultures, mythologies, and magical structures, I still maintain a high level of skepticism. Okay. Until this incident, I had never experienced anything I had felt absolutely had to be paranormal. My wife is a hardcore anti-wuju atheist who has n- who has never had a paranormal spiritual experience in her life, but who loves me enough to put up with my ec- ec- eccentricities. Yeah. It's a tough word. I grew up two left turns from bumfuck nowhere without much else to do. I spent a lot of time exploring the woods. Sound familiar? Yep. Yep. That was my childhood. Mm-hmm. They were always they were always a welcome escape and I never felt in any sort of danger in the woods. Since becoming more spiritual, I've enjoyed being able to explore those same woods at any time we visit out there as a means of meditation and communication with nature. So okay. you go home, yeah. you go back to it, you know, all that dirty hippie stuff. <laughs> Last year we were having a gathering with some friends and I decided to show them the woods that I had loved so much. While we were down in a creek bed not far from where I played the most, I looked up at the hill and saw a massive, massive gnarled tree. The tree was twisted, mostly dead, and surrounded by a thicket of sharp thorns. Mm-hmm. All of the other trees seemed to have grown well away from it. Not quite a clearing, but a definite barrier between it and the other larger trees. Yeah. Strangest of all is that I had absolutely zero memory of that tree ever being there. The tree made us all incredibly uncomfortable, and so naturally we went to investigate it. Some strange things happened that could be a story all on their own, including one of my friends that were there that day telling me that the tree wanted me specifically to go back there alone. Anyways, like every dumbass in every horror movie, (laughs) I went back. The dark feel Oh, true. The dark feeling never went away, but I got very comfortable with it. I felt drawn to that place and began to feel at home. Every time we visited, I had to go see my tree. We told my very Christian parents I was hunting for wood to carve every time I went out there so that they wouldn't get weirded out. There's background on that story. Now for the relevant story. When we, would, when we went for a visit with my parents early this year, I went through my routine of saying hi, giving hugs and kisses, and then grabbing my hiking stick and my hatchet mm-hmm. and saying mm-hmm. I was going to hunt for some wood. That day, the woods felt off. Like there was some activity that had died down right before I went in. But I pushed on and hiked back to the tree. I did my meditation and was enjoying the silence when I heard my wife calling out from just over the hill down by the creek. I stood up and started walking that way, and the only way I can describe it is that the tree called out to me and told me to come back. 
I tried to shake it off, but a murder of crows suddenly began frantically screaming overhead. I took it as a sign and I hesitantly walked back to the tree as opposed to leaving the woods Mm -hmm. where it was like a string of thoughts were fed into the back of my little lizard brain. I started thinking my wife, my wife would have called my phone failing that she would yell from the edge of the woods. She wouldn't be hard to hear. There's no way she hiked across the ravine in the shoes she had on in the wet mud. Then a conclusion would kind of pop up and feel forced upon me. That wasn't your wife. Right. I was facing away from the tree with my back to it when it felt like a hand was placed on my shoulder and a voice said clearly in my ear in a deep, masculine voice that was menacing but almost fatherly in a protective sort of way. Go now. I started back, walking as fast as I could through the thorns until I was on the game trail that crested the hill where I thought I had heard her voice. She was very clearly nowhere to be seen, and no one else was there either. This was right before spring, so there were no leaves on the trees and nowhere to hide from my vantage point. My blood ran cold as I heard a giggle off to my right. When I looked over, I saw ice coming out of a hole in a tree. What? Yeah. My... Uh, when, as if nothing else had happened, I suddenly felt the urge to leave the path and go take a picture of the ice coming out of the tree. Got it. That voice slammed back in my head. No, that is a distraction. That is bait. Keep moving. Do not stop. Do not look back. That's when I felt a presence behind me. I began walking again, and although I couldn't hear anything, it felt like someone was following me, or more accurately, someone was stalking me. I made it out of the woods and decided to just put that weirdness behind me. I would have to process it at some point and seek the advice of some trusted friends, but at that point, I just wanted a drink. I went back to the house and went about my evening without saying a word about what had happened. A few hours later, after it had gotten dark, I was too drunk to drive, so I gave my wife the keys and we said our goodbyes. As we walked to the house, I kept feeling as if something is out of the darkness. But I shake it off as I'm just drunk and my brain is being stupid after listening to too many creepy pastas online. We get in the car and pull out onto the gravel road, and that's when I started to feel very uncomfortable. I kept imagining something out there watching us. I tried shaking it off, but then I started seeing dark shapes standing on the side of the road. I couldn't make out the exact forms, but they stood out distinctly from the brush. Uh. I was starting to get freaked out, but again, I reminded myself, you're drunk. You're letting your imagination get the best of you. That's when my hardcore, atheist, skeptical, anti-wuju wife (laughs) broke the silence with a nervous laugh and said, Man, my eyes are really playing tricks on me tonight. I keep seeing stuff in the woods. I think I'm seeing stuff fly overhead. I tried to play it off, not wanting to vomit my crazy paranoia all over her, but she could tell I'm clearly holding something back. She made me tell her, and with all sincerity, she looks at me and asks, what the fuck did you bring back with you? Yeah. The things we both began to see multiply. Large black figures appear to be swooping out of the night over the hood of the car. We can see what looked like hooded figures standing just off to the side of the road in the trees. And I'm telling my wife, just keep the car moving, ignore it, just keep going. We finally hit the highway and our weird sighting slow to a stop. I start texting my friend who has studied and practiced longer than I've even been alive. It's late, but he immediately calls me to get more details. After I give him the full story, while watching my wife getting increasingly uncomfortable, he instructs us to go inside as soon as we get home. 
He tells us to place an iron in front of their doors as if, and if we can, nail red ribbons above all of the windows. According to him, the area around the tree is a gateway, and I happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time when something he referred to as a hunter came through. He said what? it. Uh huh. He said it had tried luring me, but the spirit of the tree protected me. I was told to start carrying iron and to avoid going into any wooded area for a couple of weeks, especially if I see or hear anything that could be luring me in. I had a blacksmith friend forge me an iron protection rune I carried in my pocket, and for a few months every wooded area creeped me out, and the few times I found myself in the woods, I had this intense feeling of being watched. It's easy to explain all of this away. Humans are paranoid and our brains do weird things. Mm -hmm. But I'll never forget the moment when I realized my wife, who has never been affected by anything, cracked and started to panic. To this day, that is the only thing she will even admit to making her even somewhat question if all the weird stuff I'm into is possibly real. Anyways, love the suck, love the new show. I meant to send this in sooner, but life happens. Keep on keeping on and maybe mm-hmm. buy stocks in Sage. <laughs> <laughs> After all the weirdness you've covered, remember you attract what you think oh and my speak about. God. Isn't that creepy as shit? That is so creepy. And it is so fucking Riggins. I was like imagining like hikes that we do in Riggins by your grandparents' house, leaving their house, driving along the freeway, the dark right. fucking, like I was fucked up reading that story. It was a good thing we didn't have plans <sighs> to go to your mom's because yeah, yeah. I think I would have had to bail. Man, yeah, I can just totally picture that. <sighs> that yeah, that the, I mean, that is the kind of stuff where it's like uh, I go so back and forth in my brain, mm-hmm. so skeptical in some moments, and then so like, what the fuck, and others, and totally open to these things, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, deep, deep down, deep down. I mean, I do believe that some something's out there. I think you so. Know, and, and, and I am so skeptical in certain ways. Like, I'm skeptical about, like, religion and certain things. But at the same time, I believe that there's some creative power out there. And I do believe that there is something bad out there. Like, or multiple bad things out there, too. Well, if there's good, there's got to be bad, right? I guess, yeah. You know, a counterpoint. I, the thing about that second story that really did me in is that they're both very skeptical. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, and very articulate in saying how skeptical they are, like really upfront, you know, this is. Right. Oh my gosh. I'm thinking of like, I was just uh, again in Sacramento this, you know, past uh, weekend and thinking about uh, for next week's Scared to Death, I was working on, you know, trying to get a little bit ahead on things. Yeah. And I was working on one of the stories for next week that is based, uh, it's it's the basis of 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 a Netflix movie and really creepy, you know, creepy things going on, of course, again, in like a, like an apartment this time. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I wasn't used to the shadows in my room. And I, oh, and, and I yeah. started watching it at night after one of my stand-up shows. And Ooh. then I was like, nope, after That's... two minutes. Because it was the worst bathroom door. That If you didn't shut the bathroom door in this hotel room completely, yeah. it would slowly open about a minute after you left it alone. And it would make the classic... Like, like squeak. And I was just like, that happened as, so it sounds like somebody is slowly opening the door to come out of the bathroom as I'm watching this movie. And I was like, fuck it. And I just like shut it all down. And I'm like putting on my, oh my happy God. music. Oh my God. Peaceful Spotify playlist and shut my eyes tight. Oh my God. Thanks. I love that your go-to is to shut your eyes tight. My go-to is to turn all the lights on. Mm. And like, I, I end up staying up way later than I want to. Cause I'm like, if you close your eyes, that's when it comes. 
my thing is if I turn on the lights, I can't, I can't light up the whole world. So then I was like, I, I, I light up, I could light up the whole room, for example, but then there's the dark windows. I don't know what the fuck is on the other side of the window outside. Yeah, but just keep the curtains closed. No, my thing, I'm, I'm more of a, when I get freaked out, more of a pull the covers up over, shut my eyes tight and refuse to look at anything. But that doesn't mean it's not there. I, I don't want to think about it. I just, I just, I just try well, not to think about it. I'm like, nope, 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 nope. Nope, 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 mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Luckily, I can fall asleep pretty well, even when I'm freaked out. And, and, I, and I know that. So I'm like, okay, in two minutes, I'm going to be asleep. Uh, I can't. That's why I drank so much vodka this weekend. And then after that Snedeker story, sometimes what I do is I put a little bit of lotion on my <laughs> b-hole so that if the demon has to get in there, it's not going to hurt as much. Right. That's think not ahead. how that works. Think ahead. That's not how that works. <laughs> At all. I don't know what I'm talking about. Hey, can I talk about my little doll? Yeah, please. Uh, yeah. And I, stories have, so, okay. I have some things that I want to talk about too. So Okay. Okay. So so this uh, little doll, these three little dolls, there's two little creepy little babies over there. And then this one, my friend Doug Mellard and I, the guy I was doing stand-up shows with, we went to a comic book shop in like Empire Comics, I think it's called, in uh, Sacramento. That you've been going to for years that you love. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've been going to it before to grab some stuff and didn't notice that there was this... Uh, this store next to it and the name of the store I'm now blanking on. Oh, you told me it had a weird name. Like, like uh, something miniatures or, but it's in the same little corner strip mall. There's like a Greek restaurant. There is this comic book shop. That restaurant, by the way, so good. The chicken shawarma, best I've ever had. Dang it. I love and, chicken shawarma. Oh, so good. And then, and then this creepy, like it's straight out of a horror movie. It's, it's, it's a, it's a store that is run by, uh, there's two sisters working there. They're in their eighties. Two elderly sisters. One of them even has the stereotypical, like, out of a horror movie, cloudy eyes, like cataracts in her eyes or something. Yeah. So she, I mean, it, it just does look like a, a character out of a movie. Mm-hmm. And both super weird, just like weird sister speak, talking to each other, talking to some customers. And the only thing the store sells is dollhouses and things that go into dollhouses, but they have nothing new. Right. It's the weirdest niche. Old dollhouse dolls and dollhouse furniture and old dollhouses. Mostly the dolls. So there's just a ton of creepy dolls. She asked me what I wanted the dolls for. You better be careful the way you're whipping Charlotte around Oh my God, I don't like her eyes. So she asked me what I wanted the dolls for. And I said, well, I did this like, you know, horror stories. I didn't didn't know if she didn't understand what a podcast was, not to be a dick. Right. I'm like, we tell these horror stories and, you know, it's kind of for our set. And then she didn't like that. And she was like, huh. Well, she's like, she had some, she tells me there's some guy that bought a little couch there miniature couch and you use nail polish for blood, but she told it in a way like, I don't like that. Right. So then when I go to buy my doll, she's a little skeptical of me. Out of the blue, she then asked me, because uh, uh, this one didn't have a price tag. So I was like, hey, how much is that? She tells me, so this one was only eight bucks. And then I'm like, oh, cool, I'll, t- I'll take her. And then she, her next thing she goes, you're not gonna cut her up, are you? I swear <laughs> to God, that's what she says. You're not gonna cut her up, are you? And I was like, no, no, she'll just be standing there whole. And she was like, okay. And then she sold her to me. But why doesn't she want you to cut her up? I'm worried about that doll. I didn't follow up with questions. I probably should have. Yeah. I think we need to get Monique in here to like check these dolls out. This make sure they're not eyes. carrying something. I know. And, and, and out of all the creepy stuff, this doll was the creepiest thing in there to me. So that's why I got I it. I think we should put some holy water on her. She said she doesn't want that. I don't care what Charlotte says. She says, she says, don't touch me. Charlotte. She does not like you, by the yeah. way. Her, her energy's her energy is really telling me that she didn't want you to touch her. Her energy is off. And what and what were you going to tell me as you're doing your holy water? She stuff? really does have the creepiest eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, first of all, what's up with those other two dolls? I don't know. They're like weird little twin baby things on I little just, pedestal. They did, they just, I thought they were creepy too. I didn't so I mean to them. pour it in her eyes, but oh, she, she's fucking furious with you. <laughs> oh God, she's gonna she's gonna tear you apart later. 
eek. Um, well, I just I just wanted to say thanks. I I was sad that I couldn't be in Sacramento. You know, mm-hmm. I try to go on the road with Dan as much as I can, but it just you know, when you're out of town all the time, everything mm-hmm. else falls apart. But I wanted to say thanks for my doodle socks. I showed off at the beginning of the show. <laughs> uh, somebody brought me this lovely vodka, which is actually. Mm-hmm. The best vodka ever. Crystal Skull Vodka. Crystal Skull Vodka. Oh, man. We indulged once and bought like the big Mm -hmm, bottle. mm -hmm. It's so expensive. But mm, love it. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and I do have to clear the energy on this crystal. (laughs) Came from Mount Shasta. Yeah, it came from Mount Shasta. So Lemurian. So. uh, Clearly alien being energy in there. I was messaging with our fan and he (laughs) was like, make sure Dan gives it to you. Don't let him keep it for himself. (laughs) So I got it. It's here. I love it. And, uh. I'll, I'll clear its energy and start using it. And he was, yeah, he, we were laughing about it. And he, and he was saying that the guy who sold it to him was convinced about this. That's a whole other wormhole. This Lemurian mythology um, belief system. Uh, but he doesn't believe it. The guy who gave it to this, he's like, I don't think that. But the maybe. guy who sold it to him was like, oh yeah, the Lemurian crystal. Maybe he said he didn't believe it because it was you and not me. Okay, maybe he didn't feel, yeah, comfortable saying that to me. Yeah. It's possible. Possible, possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, well. That was fun. That was a fun episode. Scary uh, stuff. Yeah, I think that like things to I linger. some iron. I'm going to be out of the woods. I'm I'm paranoid more than ever about mm-hmm. people following me home. I'm still thinking about the lady in the road from last week. Oh, yeah. Driving home, knowing that like, ugh, it's just so fucking hard to drive home at night. What if after this week, that lady starts calling you a bunch? Lindsay. Lindsay, Lindsay, Lindsay. Or just like the weird baby, like the little kid voice on the phone. That giggling is fucking mm-hmm. ugh. creepy. Giggle is uh, oh terror inducing. That is such a good way to fuck with somebody, though. Mm-hmm. Just call them all the time and just uh, talk in the little kid voice and giggle and hang up. What if it was baby secret? <sighs> baby secrets. If you guys don't know what baby secrets is, we talked about it on Time Suck. Uh, oh my do, god! <laughs> do yourself it is the a favor. Creepiest. YouTube, uh, uh, you know, search baby secrets doll, and it is unbelievable to me that this was actually marketed for children. It is the creepiest mainstream kind of doll I've ever seen by far. Do you want to hear a secret? <laughs> Do you want to hear a secret? She's like the string you pull in the back and she says the creepiest fucking shit. Is anyone else awake? <laughs> oh, God. Oh, my God. <laughs> Joe just scared the shit out of Lindsay coming in here. Uh, Joe just brought in Baby Secret, who is wearing a Time <laughs> oh Suck God. little onesie. Oh my God. I'm sorry if I just blew out anybody's ears. Oh, my God, Joe, you... Yeah, I know that, you, you, did, you didn't see. I'm well, because the, the door, Dan is facing the door, not okay. me. So I'm trying to find it's her down, little pole the side. Oh, there it's we go. The there we go. So here's um, what she says. I'll pull the string. And this is this is not messed up. She's supposed to sound like this. I want to tell you something. It kind of sounds she's starting to say like, I want to kill you. Uh, um, and so. she came She came from a friend of mine who mm-hmm. had her and was like, do you want this Val. for your studio? I'm like, yeah, Val, fucking give me that doll. <laughs> okay, so that was, a, that was a big episode. So thank you all for listening. <laughs> Joe really got me. <laughs> or God. watching Scared to Death. Uh, please keep sending in your scary stories, right? Baby Secrets wants to hear them. My story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Char- <laughs> Charlotte wants to hear them. <laughs> that really fucked me up. <laughs> Anything else? Email us at info at scared to death podcast.com. Uh, thank you for listening. Watching Scared to Death Bad Magic Production. Thanks to the Bad Magic Productions team, Harmony Velocamp, Social Media, Joe Paisley, producing and directing, Zach Flannery, a part of the team here as well. Thanks to Sophie Evans for helping find creepy stories. Thanks to Joe Paisley, Zach Cohen, and Jeffrey Montoya for the sound beds. Thanks to Heather Rylander for uh, taking over the My Story at scared to death podcast.com emails. 
Follow us on Facebook and Instagram if you want more content and to see the pictures at Scared to Death Podcast. Subscribe to Bad Magic Productions on YouTube if you want to watch the show. Enjoy your nightmares, creeps and peepers. Hope you were scared to death. If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through but has no home here within scared to death.